From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Sasmi Nishat. And I'm Carter Grzitza. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we'll be tuning in to an interview Dylan did recently. Dylan spoke with Ginger Gibson, the director of the Firelight Group. The Firelight Group is working to support Indigenous peoples and communities to defend their own rights. They talk about what the group does, the successes they've seen, and the challenges to Indigenous nations' right to self-governance in the face of a colonial state. But before we dive into those stories, here are this week's environmental news headlines. 85 people have been arrested after protesters occupied five bridges in London, England, on Saturday, November 17th, in one of the largest acts of civil disobedience in UK history. The blockade was organized by a campaign run by Extinction Rebellion, a new group that aims to force governments to recognize and treat the threats of climate change and extinction as a crisis. Saturday, November 17th was the climax of two weeks of protest, with approximately 6,000 people taking part in their campaign. The group is calling for governments to reduce carbon emissions to zero by 2025 and to establish a citizens' assembly to devise an emergency plan of action. Now for this week's story. The Firelight Group is an organization that works for Indigenous communities by providing research, guidance, and support through all stages of environmental assessments, negotiations, and community policy and planning. They aim to provide services tailored to supporting the rights and interests of Indigenous peoples and communities in Canada and beyond. Terra Informer Dylan Hall spoke with Dr. Jidner Gibson, the director of the Firelight Group. Ginger Gibson, thank you for coming in and speaking with me. It's my pleasure. Do you mind just introducing yourself a little bit and the Firelight Group? Sure. I'm a settler, so I'm from this area, from Alberta, but uh, I'm a settler on Treaty 6 territory and um, and happy to have made my home here. I think I grew up with activist parents that really introduced me to the concept of being a guest on Indigenous lands. And um, early on, I became quite aware of the kinds of industrial messes that mining and oil and gas companies have made in uh, Indigenous lands. And so fairly early in my life, I committed myself to working for and with communities on issues related to industrial development and control and management of industrial development. The firm that I, I've founded is called the Firelight Group. And we have offices in Vancouver and Victoria and Edmonton. And we work with more than 200 communities in Canada and in other countries now, uh, making sure that um, communities have access to technical expertise. We founded our company 10 years ago, and we made a decision early on that we would only work for Indigenous communities. Mining companies and government have some very strong interests, and they also need lots of good, strong technical work done for them. We just felt that there already was lots of engineering and environmental and social science expertise available to companies and government, and we wanted to make sure that that same uh, experience was available for communities and often communities want to have access to expertise that they know is focused solely on their interests, their values and their their concerns. We have a social return program in which we take a third of our profits annually and reinvest them in communities. So we accept proposals from communities and hard to fund projects that communities want to see go forward will fund. I'm really curious how um you decide which services are going to be best rendered for communities, what's most important, what those technical services are, how they include cultural importance. So we take direction from communities. They tell us what work needs doing. 
it's hard to find financing for what people believe needs doing. So some nations, for example, want to invest their funding and, and their time and their energies and their, their people's capacity into cultural invigoration. So on the land programs, training young people who are getting exposed to Western sciences, making sure that they're getting equal uh, participation in Indigenous sciences and equal training in Indigenous sciences. And it's very hard to find financing for that. I mean, most of the dollars in Canada that are going to Indigenous work are often associated with health, housing, um, and are very tied. So it's tied financing that's very hard to allocate to a nation's own priorities. My, my vision, and I'd love to see Indigenous communities be able to have financing that they need to be able to allocate to the programs and services that they want to deliver, not just the programs and services that the federal government in a colonial model of of control and management wants to deliver. And so I suppose one specific example of that, and one of the reasons that I was drawn to your work was work that you've done in Indigenous-led environmental assessments. They're not completely controlled by government. So I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit first what the process of environmental assessment is. Sure. So in Canada, depends on what jurisdiction you're in. So every jurisdiction has its own rules, but Canada generally has an act that controls when a large project that crosses certain thresholds Um, size, amount of um, mineral that's being taken out of the land, um, people, number of people employed. There's a whole bunch of thresholds that cause the federal government to take a look and say this project has to go through an environmental review. So we've had environmental assessment in Canada for a long time, like since the Mulroney government. And I've been very proud of our environmental assessment history because it means that big projects are getting a, a, a great deal of attention by bureaucrats in our governments that are looking at it and saying, how will this impact on fish? How will this impact on water? So the two big pieces of legislation that guide it are on in fisheries and on in, in waters. So we have a mandate from the federal government to protect water, to protect fisheries. We have um, less of a mandate because there's no direct act or legislation that requires the government to uh, look at the interests of Indigenous people. And yet most of the projects, in in fact the vast majority of the projects that are being proposed that are large-scale industrial projects in oil and gas or mining or pipelines or hydro are in in Indigenous lands. And no one is looking clearly at the impact on rights. So when you think about the treaty, when, when Canada signed treaty with Indigenous people, settlers made a series of promises. And those promises relate to the rights that Indigenous people would be accorded. So rights to hunt, trap, pursue their um, livelihoods out on the land. And uh, our environmental assessment system is broken in that it doesn't have a very strong pathway for looking at those rights and the impacts on those rights. And so as a result, we've eaten up land. Settlers have eaten up land and eaten up away in a cumulative way in a complex way, we've eaten away at the rights of Indigenous people to do what we promised that they could do, which is actively hunt, trap, and spend their time pursuing their culture, language, and way of life on the land. And so environmental assessment hasn't carefully looked at or been able to understand those impacts. And as a result, I think I'm an observer to this, um, and I've really been taught by the Indigenous people who have had me involved in their environmental assessments. Um, I've seen lots of Indigenous governments 
look at that system of environmental assessment, push it aside and say, we need to do this in a different way. We need to do this in a way that's consistent with our way of life and consistent with our values and allows us to set the frame. Because when environmental assessment is set, when the frame is set and the laws are set by the settler culture, then often that worldview and that language and that um, mind frame only allows a certain set of values to evaluate and then to come up with the answers about what should occur. And just to clarify, like when you say indigenous lands, you're talking about far more than what many people I think think of when they think of what indigenous lands mean. Broadly speaking, I, I see most of Canada as indigenous lands. Yeah. Canada, uh, the Crown, has in many cases settled what they see as historic and modern land claim agreements with Indigenous peoples. They're not, there's many land claims that are still being pursued. The Crown has a very restrictive view of what Indigenous lands are. Um, indigenous people have much more expansive view. I, as a settler, see all these lands as Treaty 6, the lands I'm in as Treaty 6 lands. And, and the historic treaties I see as um, treaties that have not actually settled the questions of land or ownership. I respect the rights and interests and values and laws of Indigenous people and when a project is proposed on their lands, they should have the right and authority to decide what sort of process should occur. Right. And and so uh, that's what I believe, that's not what happens, um, but it has happened. And so what's remarkable is is looking at places where it has happened in mm-hmm. Canada. So I wonder if you could tell us how the process of Indigenous-led environmental assessments stands currently, who performs them, how it's regulated, what benefits come with that. So we we did a study this last year with the Gwich'in Council International, and it was released at the Arctic Council. And and we defined Indigenous-led impact assessment as a process completed prior to any approvals, or consent being provided for a proposed project which is designed and conducted with meaningful and adequate degree of control by one or more Indigenous parties on their own terms uh, and with their approval. Mm -hmm. So this means that an Indigenous government has the right to review a project and then give consent and give consent or not give consent, right, to also say no uh, at the same time as a federal minister or as a provincial minister. Uh, to a major project. So we've seen this occur in Canada and it's really super exciting when it does. Mm -hmm. So what are some examples of times that it has occurred? Well, so we looked at three different approaches. One is um, where it's co-managed, so where an Indigenous government and the Crown work jointly. This happens in the Northwest Territories, for example, where there is co-management, where Mm -hmm. Aboriginal governments have been recognized and are making a decision and have the right under legislation that they've jointly negotiated with the Crown to make decisions about projects and about project approvals. So one really interesting case, I was involved in it and I've been involved for a very long time with the Clicho government, which is a government in the Northwest Territories that owns 39,000 square kilometers, subsurface and surface, and they are managing and controlling their lands. Um, And there's a project that was proposed in the middle of their lands for a polymetallic mine and they went through an environmental assessment that they concluded in 2013 where on the same day at the same time they made a decision to accept the report of environmental assessment that was issued and they made that decision at the same time as the federal minister so you can imagine how exciting that is for an aboriginal government to make a decision and a determination on their lands at the same time as the minister and what was unique about it was we didn't know 
if the federal minister was going to say yes or no, and they didn't know if we were going to say yes or no. Interestingly, both the federal minister and the Clicho government agreed that the project, the report of environmental assessment, should be accepted. So it was super interesting. That's an example where two governments exercise their own authority. Um, there's other cases, though. So people in that you listen to your program might have heard of the Ajax mine that was proposed in Kamloops. So this was a, um, a large mine, open pit mine, proposed right in the, in the territory of Shepwetmix Nation. They ran their own panel. Um, their panel was huge. They had a really um, large, expansive group of elders, youth, and, um, and community members who ran panels uh, and, and assessed the project and whether that project was in line with their vision and view of what should happen on that area of land. And they decided no that it shouldn't proceed. That was last year. And that project was also rejected by the federal minister. So interestingly, they didn't participate in the provincial process. They chose to run their own independent process. Mm. And I recommend anyone who's interested in that case, there's tons of really good video footage and really good information that has been published by the nation themselves. Was the federal minister's decision in part based on that review that they led? I don't, I don't know. I don't mm. know. I, I think um, the federal minister wasn't expansive on that point, but they decided that that project wasn't in the public interest uh, and, and made it a determination that it should not proceed. Um, the nation uh, made a really brave decision and did they pursued that process on their own. It's a high rewards context when an Indigenous nation pursues their own environmental assessment like that. Um, it, it also holds risks because it means they're exercising their authority, but they're doing so outside of the process that's led by the federal minister or the, the provincial minister. And in cases where that has occurred, it's been very fortunate that the federal minister, the provincial minister, and the indigenous decisions have lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that a couple of times where the decisions have all lined up. So another example where people said yes was in Squamish Nation in BC, where the Squamish Nation um, approved a, um, a wood fiber um, pulp facility, but so did the provincial government. But they did it, again, independent of each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so their approvals lined up, and, uh, and their, but their processes were totally different, and they actually had quite profoundly different outcomes. Fundamentally changed the project. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't have occurred if they had done, if they had pursued the provincial process, if they'd gone through the provincial process of environmental assessment. They used all of the good information from the provincial government, so in, in a sense they had parallel processes and they fed each other information. But at the same time, the Squamish got really, because it's their land, they have cultural areas that are vitally um, important to cultural integrity and cultural futures and they had to negotiate with the proponent that those areas were avoided. Hmm. So that wouldn't have happened with the province. Uh, It did happen because they had a strong bilateral relationship with the proponent. So they negotiated to protect areas and they were able to do so. They also really didn't want to see water being used from the house sound because it would have been warmed and that would have had impacts not only on um, water but on fish. And so they looked at all of the options for technological alternatives, negotiated with the proponent and caused the proponent to choose an alternative technology for um, managing uh, process water. So I think you can, you know, you can look at it and say they came to a resolution where they accepted the project. Um, they had 24 conditions under which the project pr- could proceed that they I- issued themselves, the 25th of which was their giving their consent as long as all those 24 conditions were met. So it's a really strong ability for people to develop locally important, significant 
community-based solutions for projects to proceed that have their consent in place uh, that you wouldn't necessarily get when the province is looking at it from afar. You can think about like, when the province runs an environmental assessment, they set a whole what they call valued components, and so they look at the impact a valued component would be fish, for example. So they'd look at fish, they'd look at water, they'd look at all, and they kind of tear apart the environment into a bunch of silos. When in this context, the Squamish set one valued component. Their one valued component was culture, rights, way of life. And then they looked at everything else through that lens. So you can see from a frame of reference, from the way that they look at it, um, at the process, it's, it's entirely different. And for them to be able to have those recommendations accepted, they did need to have a relationship with the project proponent. They did, yes. Mm. So um, the relationship is vital uh, to the, and, and, and that's not a small thing to say, the relationship of how people behave and conduct themselves in Indigenous territory, the way that they introduce themselves, the way that they show respect, um, the way that they honour the people around them, all of those things um, matter to a project's fundamental outcomes and to whether a project is accepted or not accepted in Indigenous lands. What do you think it will take for Indigenous leadership in environmental assessment to be taken up more widely in Canada? I think people have to listen. And uh, and that's a tough thing for people to do, for environmental assessment practitioners to do, uh, for our legislation to catch up with. I think um, the Trudeau administration has taken a crack at revising the environmental assessment approach. And um, we don't know how that's going to play out yet because the legislation's in the House. Uh, and they're, you know, they have set, uh, they have set a table for Indigenous advisors. Uh, so hopefully they'll be able to listen really well uh, to what those Indigenous advisors have to say at the federal level. I think in BC, for example, uh, there's a BC environmental assessment um, review occurring currently where they're trying to revitalize their approach. Uh, again, it, it's the ability to listen um, and allow for differences to emerge. Um, and to bubble up, there's a, an organization called the Major po Project Coalition in British Columbia that is uh, member-driven. There's 40 nations that are giving guidance and, and um, direction to that coalition. And that coalition is building a um, major project standard um, for Indigenous communities. So there's lots of work starting to bubble up and occur. And I think the challenge for um, settler governments and for people that, you know, for our legislation and our and our refinement of that legislation is to listen and take direction. As you were saying earlier, there's not a lot of financial support from settler governments um, or project proponents. And maybe this is where I'm curious, perhaps what could be done to support this process? Well, I, I think I, that's that's actually a, the question Canada has to ask. So the yeah. federal government needs to put funding behind uh, and and um, and allow for uh, indigenous law to emerge and um, and indigenous led processes to be uh, to be run in parallel um, or jointly. Uh, and the funding needs to be in place. So in some jurisdictions, there is funding available for this. So in the Northwest Territories, for example, there are regulatory bodies that have very good, clear processes for Indigenous uh, funding. And uh, and then also Indigenous governments will turn to uh, 
a, in, an, in, a, in a project, they'll turn to the proponent uh, and negotiate financing for good regulatory review, good review of the project, good review of their information. So there are lots of models where the financing has been made available through the federal government and through the proponent. But it's, it's not cheap. It's um, a good environmental assessment. I don't know. I know that the major project coalition in BC is currently looking at what the costs are of, of strong Indigenous-led environmental assessment. I would guess that it's anywhere, depending on the project, that it's anywhere from 250000 up to a million or more to do a really good, solid process. It takes time. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of capacity. So one of the things that we did in our report that we released last May at the Arctic Council through the Gwich'in Council International was we looked at the ups and downs of different Indigenous-led processes. So whether you do it with the proponent, whether you do it with the Crown, or whether you do it on your own. So we called those co-managed, co-developed, and independent. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we looked at the funding restraints. We looked at the governance constraints. We looked at all of the different wrinkles that emerge depending on who, who you who you choose to dance with, right? Essentially, like who's your partner in looking at a project. And, and not with the suggestion or the idea that one is best, just with the suggestion that people are doing them in different ways. And here's what some of the wrinkles are when you run a project review with a proponent. Here's what the wrinkles are when you do it with the crown. Here's what the wrinkles are when you do it with the um, with on your own. And I think we, we developed some tools and some, um, some lessons learned that hopefully will serve Indigenous governments when they're looking, when they're starting out and they're looking at a project and saying, we want to do a thorough review of this, which path should we take? And uh, allow people to really think through their, their reasoning about why they would choose to do it on their own versus why they might choose to do it with the proponent. Without universalizing or telling anybody listening exactly what those lessons might be because it's going to be different on based on every project was there anything that you could take away from that that you thought was like a really important thing no matter which absolutely so I mean I, I think that when we a couple things that we learned um, first of all uh, that people need to think about their leverage right what is it you know what is your leverage what's the, what are the stakes associated with this project um, and what kind of leverage do you have so um, is it core territory for the nation? Um, do you have legislation that supports you? Um, do you have, um, are, how are your rights expressed in this particular jurisdiction? Is it distant from your area? Is it uh, in a cultural keystone area? Are there species that are absolutely vital to the culture that are travel traveling through that area? So thinking about leverage, that's an, a fundamental point that we learned. Um, secondly, we learned that all of these processes require a substantial amount of investment of time and resources, and uh, and and nations need to think that through clearly, uh, deciding whether they can afford to invest that time and that effort in, if it's a vital area where you know what we found was where it's a really strategically important area to the nation's culture and rights and way of life, um, that they often decide to make the investment decision. Um, it can take anywhere from. Uh, one to ten years to do this kind of review depending on how and the process plays out so um, making that determination and and considering the resource that is re the resources required is vital thirdly we learned that no matter what nations are choosing to do if they're even they're cho if they're choosing to do it on their own um, that it's vital not to ignore what's going on with the crown to um, make sure that if in that there's there's some connection to the crown processes so you're understanding um, what 
you know, what and how the Crown is driving their review process, but also uh, really understanding and, and thinking through um, what might come from a good Crown process, because the Crown process can liberate a lot of really good technical information that you then don't have to spend your money on. I was referring to that with the Squamish. They learned a ton of information out of the Crown process that they used in their own environmental review. You know, I think what we really saw is that um, people were really uh, connecting to their own community and culture when they're, they're doing these environmental reviews on their own um, and coming out of them uh, quite a bit stronger um, and able to control their territory. So that's actually what I was going to ask you about, is if there's anything that comes out of these Indigenous-led reviews that isn't just beneficial in terms of the end product, but is beneficial in terms of the process itself. Uh, last weekend I was in um, Mix country and um, learning from them about their case and I just saw people were really proud. You know, if you can think of um, people standing up and saying, you know, we as a, a, our youth, um, and their videos are beautiful. There's elders and when they made their decision, they made their decision out on the land and there's kids standing behind the chief and standing behind their elders and there's women and there's everyone was engaged. And they collectively, they said, we have chosen for this land to be used for our well-being, for our cultural and, um, and social and environmental well-being. Therefore, we've chosen that this Ajax mine cannot proceed. They're standing up now and you can see the pride and the joy uh, that people have in having reviewed a project and made a decision to stand by their land and make sure that their land continues to be taken care of by them and that they made a decision that they made under their own authority using their own laws. And so the outcome of that is people that are, are feeling really strong and really alive. So too did I see that with the Squamish though and they made a decision for a project to proceed. So it's the pride in having made a decision. The Squamish changed the project and they're proud of that decision. All of the projects we've been talking about and all the different reviews that went through they were either in line with the also colonial government's decision or they were accepted by the project proponent. Mm -hmm. If a review came to a point where the answer was either no or we have conditions that a project proponent didn't want to meet, what avenue could a community have? There's so many examples of that, right? We have no, we don't need to look any further than Trans Mountain Pipeline. It, it's happening, um, it's playing out in our midst right now where the Trans Mountain Pipeline is, um, is you know, the, the federal government says that this project shall proceed and, uh, and lots of nations are saying that project cannot proceed. So we have many, many examples in Canada where Indigenous consent has not been given mm. and, uh, and projects proceed. And so avenues that people have um, are uh, are all the way from direct action. So um, there's lots of examples where nations have pursued direct action and then been successful in causing projects not to proceed. There's many examples of that, but then also nations have the um, opportunity and the option always to go to court. Ultimately, um, the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous People uh, is it's a very short um, read that I think everybody in Canada should be aware of. I think we should all be aware of our treaty, but I think we should also all be aware of the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous People, which has um, been negotiated and reviewed very carefully in the United Nations. Many Indigenous people have fought very hard to get that document and that um, set of norms and, uh, and, and laws in place. Um, it's international um, best practice and, and international law that we can appeal to, and it requires that Indigenous consent be in place for major projects on their lands. 
And uh, so if anybody wants to do any reading after um, listening to the show, it's the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous People that I would point everyone to. Is there anything else that you, you want to add? Um, I would just say that I don't speak for Indigenous people. Yeah. I'm a settler. I've been really fortunate in my career to be able to turn my attention and my um, my skills to uh, serving in indig Indigenous communities, but um, I certainly learn more um, every day uh, from people that uh, take the time to teach me, uh, and, and I'm hopeful that um, we'll see a future in Canada where Indigenous people are um, are running and managing in Indigenous-led environmental assessment all across Canada. Well, Ginger, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dylan Hall speaking with the director of the Firelight Group, Ginger Gibson. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informant is produced at CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks to everyone who helped out with this week's show. Our contributors are Amanda Rooney, Hannah Cunningham, Dylan Hall, and Sydney Karbonik. We've been your hosts, Carter Grizitza and Thasmi Anishath. Catch you all next week, same time, same place, right here on Terra Informa. Nice. I like that ending. It's very aggressive. <laughs> <laughs>